Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by movement expert Jonathan Pierce. Jonathan and I had a really good conversation around body mechanics and more specifically the faults that happen and the common trends that we see around some of the common injuries. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Jonathan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well, Brianne. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to talk to you. You are not only a runner um, at a very high level or fairly high level, um, but you also are a clinician who deals with athletes on a regular basis. So you understand both mindsets of <laughs> of a person, the the one that wants to keep training through everything and the one who wants to fix everything. So um, I think it's a good mix of person to bring on here to really dive into like what's like what we can train through, what we can't, and really what's going on with the body at times. Sure, sure. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's nice to be here. I, I, um, I guess I've had a lot of uh, results with working with athletes coming off of problems or trying to get around problems or work through them. And then I was an athlete, like I said, and, and I did have quite a few injuries. So I've, I, some of my, my greatest hardships athletically have, um, I guess, spurred my career forward and helped me to kind of find, find the way to what I'm doing now, which is, which is helpful. So, uh, and I can draw on that experience a lot when I work with people or uh, it's fun to, and it's fun to talk with people like you about it. Absolutely. So let's dive into that a little bit. Like, who are you and how did you get to this point? Uh, sure. So, so I was, um, I, I now live in San Diego, California. Uh, I run a 10,000 square foot sports performance and rehab facility. And we have um, a bunch of different uh, kinds of practitioners around. We have um, acupuncturists in my, in my facility, sports medicine focused acupuncturists. We have three of those. Uh, we have personal trainers, and then we have guys that are more in the strength coach kind of role with working with athletes. And then we have um, quite a few manual therapists, uh, either doing sports massage or doing, you know, more technical uh, manual modalities like ART and things like that. Um, and then we are working to add a few more uh, other clinicians and services and all of that. So um, we also have a biomechanics lab and uh, do quite a bit of running analysis with that. Uh, kind of with runners of all levels, and we're going to be adding golf and uh, uh, baseball modules to our biomechanics uh, lab soon. So, um, so that's where I am now. But I grew up on the East Coast originally, far from San Diego. I grew up in upstate New York, and then um, became uh, a, a pretty good high school runner. So I tried a bunch of sports and wasn't good enough at anything to play in college until I found running, and then. Uh, I got recruited to go to a lot of different schools. So I ended up going to school at Stanford University, and uh, I basically went there because it was the best program in the country at the time, and we won a couple of national titles in the time I was there and placed highly in others, and um, I was All-American and ran pretty well, uh, and then I got really injured my fifth year and um, wanted to keep training this, so I trained professionally for a couple of years after that and pursued trying to be a kind of a fledgling pro runner. I wasn't really uh, running at the level that I wish I could have achieved, but it was a good experience and I got to race all over the world uh, and travel all over the world. So um, yeah, so that was cool. Injury wise, what sorts of things did you deal with as you were going through that career? Yeah, so I had um, my senior year in, in college was my first uh, injury and I had a I injured my toe and then I had kind of like a turf toe and then it turned into, I was chewing ibuprofen and well worse, diclofenax and everything else to get through the season. And I ran the cross country national championship, um, the NCAA championship on it and ended up with a stress fracture in my sesamoid. So the medial sesamoid was fractured and, uh, or partially fractured, whatever. And so I had to take, I had to go into a boot and all that. We had, a had some tough coaching, uh, changes in my time at Stanford. And so, um, the last coach we had really couldn't manage a team of our size and didn't really want to. Uh, so we had a lot of issues with just 
injury and um, overtraining and all those kinds of things. So anyway, um, some of that was my fault too. And, uh, and, then, and then I had a third met stress fracture that spring coming back off of the toe. So kind of this whole feedback loop. And the next year, my first year as a pro, I trained in North Carolina. Had a wonderful opportunity to run uh, for Pete Ray. He's a coach in North Carolina um, at Zap Fitness. And we were a Reebok group. And um, I ended up with pretty bad planner on the same foot. So it was all kind of right foot stuff. Um, and then that year was the 08 uh, trials year. So it's built up to the 08 Olympics in Beijing. And um, I, about three weeks before the trials or two weeks before, I got a stress fracture in my right sacral ala. So part of my pelvis or in the sacrum. And so that was the end of that season. And I ran the trials on that stress fracture. Um, but, uh, it wasn't smart to do it. And, uh, and then I had to take three months off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and that was, you know, there was a, that was the whole thing. So, and then I, I think those are, those are really the worst injuries that I've had from a running standpoint. Um, so, but that, that year was particularly hard because I did have bad planter and, and trying to get rid of the planter. I was in an orthotic and doing all this taping and other stuff for my foot and, um, and it just was not able to manage it. So, uh, yeah. So things go up the chain, as you know. <laughs> so diving into that a little bit, clinically wise, like what have, what did throughout that process you kind of figure out contributed to all of those issues? Yeah. So um, I, there was a couple issues that year, and these are probably good lessons for most endurance athletes, but um, I was, I was pushing it hard. I was, I was running at the peak there, 115 miles in some weeks. And I was a middle distance track athlete, so I was gonna get ready for the steeplechase. I ran the 3000 meter steeplechase, 5K, 10K. And um, I was planning to run the steeplechase at the trials, but I ran so well in the winter that I made the world cross country team. And then I, so I went to Edinburgh, Scotland to run in, in, in that race, which is a big honor to represent the US and all of that it was my first and only US team. And, um, and that's in late March. And so because I was getting ready for that, we delayed all my hurdling uh, practice and going over, working on going over barriers until later in the spring. Uh, but I ran, you know, that, that cross country season and my foot got jacked again, running in the mud in, in basically a cow pasture quality uh, cross country course and uh, and really challenging cross country course. <laughs> so, um, so my foot, I came back from Scotland and my foot was jacked and um, I had to go, I go, went to this really cool osteopath guy in Asheville, North Carolina. I'll never forget it. He, he did this, all this cool stuff treating me. He was kind of like, a, you know how osteopaths have a little bit of that applied kinesiology uh, style. He did a lot of that stuff, but he also did some adjustments and kind of figured out what was wrong, got my navicular to move. And then the planner was instantly better between him adjusting my navicular and getting cortisone in the planner. I made like a, you know, 50% improvement in three days or something ridiculous. So, so that was really cool. And that was a, something I always remember uh, now in my, in my current situation. But um, yeah, so I think, I think it was all those things with, you know, my right foot being so affected. And then I was really lean. I was like a little bit too lean. The lowest I've ever been on a DEXA scan is 4.6% body fat. And I was easily five or eight pounds lighter that year than I'd ever been on my lightest DEXA in subsequent years. So I was, you know, way too lean, uh, which is when, you know, bone stress injuries can happen. And I, I wasn't like disordered eating or anything. I was just, I was just trying to be really dialed in. And I was super clean in nutrition, no packaged foods, no processed foods. And I was on planes, like back and forth across the country racing and just, you know, things got tight. Um, I got a little bit weak probably in that, that right side from the, uh, from the foot compensations. And it, you know, there was other stress too. There was a lot of psycho-emotional stress with trying to chase the child's time and was dealing with some things in a relationship at the time. So all those factors, I think it was the perfect storm. So. And I think it's a great thing to point out that, our injuries aren't just because of the training we do that there is those other factors of, you know, our, our nutritional intake. And like you said, you were eating well, it's just a matter of you were still letting yourself get, get really lean and those outside stressors, like just because it's an outside stressor doesn't mean it's not stress on the body and stress fracture is because of stress. So there, it really is a multiple component injury a lot of times. I, I absolutely think so. And if you, I, I never did it at the time, but if you did it like an adrenal panel on me, 
you know, a week or two before I got that stress fracture, I'm sure it wouldn't have been good, you know, and, um, and it, there's just so many components to injury. And I, I don't, I don't think we really even have scratched the surface of understanding it all, but, but I definitely can say that I really care about mechanics. And I know that's kind of one thing you wanted to talk to me about today. And I, I, I believe that mechanics really are super important to injury, but I, I, I have to, acknowledge that there's another component to injury that's not mechanical and it's hormonal and it's psycho-emotional and some of these other things happen, you know, the way they do, I think, in a, in a much more complex uh, schema than just mechanics. But, but mechanics are very important. Yes. Well, and I think sometimes that's, you know, even when we address the mechanics, some people still have these nagging issues going on. And I think it is because, like, you may see a great therapist who addresses all the mechanics, but if they don't address the nutrition and the stress and those other components. Like I, in my opinion, that's why a lot of these nagging issues do stick around. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you have, you got to put everything on the table, right? Look at all the options and, you know, mechanics is one part, strength is another part, you know, training loads and recovery and nutrition and yeah, so much, so much stuff. How's your, how's your, you know, home life, all, all those things really factor into uh, athlete successes, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, let's dive into the mechanics since that's absolutely where you love to work as a coach and clinician. And I love to work as a coach and clinician. Sure. Um, and where I specifically wanted to go is for those, like just talking about how everything affects anything essentially in the body that like something in the back can be causing your hamstring issue. Something in your foot can be causing your shoulder issue. Like everything's connected essentially. And that's really what I want to have that conversation around is how, like these nagging issues, these things that stick around that no one can figure out and those reasons behind it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I can even, I can use myself as an example. Um, I like, it wasn't kind of, I had a light bulb moment about a year and a half after, um, no, a year, a year after the trials, I went to see this really excellent, uh, guy, he's a, he's one of the best, uh, like kind of sports oriented chiropractors in the world. And, um, I went with, went to see him for my, to check on my, my back and my foot because I was healing from those injuries that first year of pro running. And, and I, the other thing that I didn't tell you just before with the, why it happened was that I had had a problem with my shoulder a year before I did, uh, no, two years before, a year before. No, let's see, six months before I did my foot, the first foot injury, I had a left shoulder problem. I dislocated my shoulder uh, and, and got kind of like some rudimentary advice on how to handle it from an ortho, but not very good advice at the time. And I didn't manage it well. And I had this shoulder compensation on my right or my left shoulder. And then my right foot was, got, was what got hurt. And, um, and it wasn't until I went to see this guru guy who became a mentor to me and, you know, I still keep in touch with, we talk a good amount. We share some cases sometimes. And he, um, he was like, Oh, well, I want to look at your shoulder. Cause I'd filled out a form and the shoulder was marked, you know, he's like, Oh, I do want to look at your shoulder too. And it was like, he was like, I think that can affect your foot. And it's like, we don't want to think that far, but that's the body, as you know, has these wonderful kind of compensation patterns and diagonal chains that, that work. And, um, it, when you're, what's happening is that when you're pushing off the ground with your right foot, your, you know, your left shoulder has to extend behind you a bit. Your humerus has to extend and you've got to swing your elbow back to counterbalance what's happening with your left leg and, um, and then opposite in, in stance phase on the right hand side. So, um, I, I think it was a good relationship for me of like understanding that, you know, there's a lot bigger picture going on. Uh, and I always keep that in mind when I look at people, when I look at athletes and talk to athletes and we're always looking for like what else there is, um, besides like, okay, you've got a hamstring problem. Okay, sure. Do all the normal hamstring exercises, make sure you treat this, that, and the other thing, but like what's going on with your neck, what's going on with your feet, what's going on with the whole system and, and in multiple planes and what are the training loads like and all, all of these factors. But, you know, training loads different than mechanics, but the mechanics I think are what allow us to handle greater training loads. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I know you had, we talked on the phone, you had a good example of a hamstring injury due to the neck um, mm -hmm. being the cause. And so I would love for you to kind of dive into the lab a little bit, especially because with runners, hamstring injuries are so extremely common. 
and they just tend to go on forever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd love to just kind of have that conversation as far as like, what are these other things that can cause hamstrings that we may not even think about? Sure. Great one. Um, well, uh, yeah. So the one I, there's an interesting case and I, I have a woman who's, who's a very good runner, um, you know, in the low two forties in the marathon. Um, and so she, you know, can qualify for trials and things like that. Uh, and she had come to me last fall, I believe. And she had a, she'd had this kind of nagging chronic hamstring issue. Um, and you know, kind of, we looked at the whole thing and I, you know, I like to do like a really kind of broad assessment where I almost don't tell me too much, like tell me what you've done and what you don't like getting done and what you've had has helped. But like, other than that, I'm going to, let me think about it. And so, and sometimes you just have a sense of things, right. And when you kind of look for like the obvious deviations or the obvious problems and with her, I noticed right away that, um, and, and it's a little bit easy when somebody has had a problem for three years or two years and they've gotten lots of work on it and still there it's almost easier because <laughs> now you know like well there's got to be a we got to go more macro right um uh, so i looked at and i i you know with her it's also taking into account the uh, the environmental situation right so for me when i got my sacral stress fracture i was on a plane like every two weeks flying back and forth across the country big flights and that doesn't help your your back and your hips and everything else right uh well her she's a physician she's a pediatric um physician and she does work with children's eyes so she's always looking to the side and down peering into into their eyes and so and i noticed right away she had some issues with her upper cervical spine as a result of spending long days in clinic, like doing those, doing those checks. So I did, um, it, and it was, it was also, you know, there was some range of motion things in her hip and her, you know, pelvis on that side correlated with the hamstring. But I guess I just wanted to dabble in the macro and the micro at the same time, instead of just focusing on the pelvis. So I did some stuff on her neck and immediately the hip range of motion things normalized. And then I did a little bit more on the neck and I kept kind of retesting things and it just got better and better. And then we had a run and I had her do different like exercises. Like, you know, I like to do like a couple high box step ups or put somebody under a bit of load for a 12 inch box and just see what's happening. And I just was noticing she was like able to feel her hip work better. Her glute was working better. She was sitting like the femur was really sitting in the joint better. Um, and I was noticing better like head position as well. And so um, that was something where Sure, we had some other things to do. We had to sort out, like, there was, like, some obturator internus kind of hyperspasm going on, and there was a little bit of sacrotuberous ligament things that had been missed and whatever else. So those things also needed to be dealt with in relationship to that, how close that hamstring tendon was getting irritated. Um, but the the big win was just dealing with, like, her neck and getting her occiput and C1, C2 all to work well together, getting those obliques and, you know, suboccipitals to to, to set well. Um, so that was a fun example and I have a lot more of those, but, uh, but that was a, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy how like, I, as a clinician, I know it, you know, I know how everything's connected, but just to like see it at times, it's just still like astounding. It, it's a little, yeah, is this real, you know, and then, and then you got to see how does it hold up. Right. But, um, you know, so luckily I, I do work with her kind of concurrently. And so I've gotten to kind of um, see her, follow her for a while. We really kind of cleared up the hamstring stuff. Now we're dealing with some other issues that are kind of longer standing, you know, uh, other kinds of issues, but they're, they're, they're fixable. It's just going to they take time. Um, so, but she has mostly been devoid of any hamstring issue at all. <laughs> so that's, awesome. that's pretty interesting. I had another woman who's elite triple jumper. And I, I can't remember, maybe this was the one I told you about. I don't think so. And she had like a hip impingement on, on one side and she'd actually been seeing one of the, one of the, some therapists down at the Olympic training center. She'd been seeing people in, in my group even as well. And we just, it, the hip kept coming back and you know, it's tough with, with, I don't know, she's a long jumper. And, and it was getting to the point where like, well, do we need to get an MRI on her hip. Is this just, this is the business of long jump. That's your takeoff leg. There's all this stress. And it's time to get an MRI and see what's what. And so I, I hadn't seen her, so I saw that I got asked to see her. I'm kind of a last resort guy. And um, I took a look and did did some testing. And I was like, 
I don't know. And I just had this inkling there was something else. And so, again, I looked at her neck and I did like seven minutes, 10 minutes, whatever of treatment on her neck and, uh, and a little bit on her jaw. And I do quite a bit of jaw stuff from time to time when you got any upper cervical stuff. And, uh, and then retested the FAI, couldn't find it. No FAI, couldn't, couldn't hit it at all. And so, um, I don't, I don't, that's not meant to sound like voodoo. It just was, uh, I got fortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and she really, I think pretty much that was the end of the, I think we had a couple times where like she'd travel long flights for planes and stuff. And then the neck would come back a bit. We'd get that dialed in and then the hip would dial back away. But you could always tell when it was coming, like the hip would kind of start to come up a bit and chase it away. So it was a fun, um, that was a fun one as well to just to see that. So, and I don't know if I totally answered your question, other sources of hamstring problems. I can answer that too, if you have other desires for me to answer it. (laughs) Yes, that would be awesome. (laughs) Let's take a quick break to talk about zero shoes. You know I love being barefoot. I am barefoot as much as possible. But when you're out in public, sometimes that's frowned upon. And when you're walking around on concrete and asphalt in the Phoenix summers, it's highly unsafe. That's when zero shoes comes in handy. These shoes allow my feet to be as barefoot as possible to allow my feet to still work like they were made to work. And the great thing about these shoes is they last. They have a 5,000 mile sole warranty, meaning you rarely have to replace these shoes. And they have a wide range of options. So whether you're looking for sandals, something for casual wear, or something for your sports or work, they have you covered. You can go check them out at zero shoes. That's spelled X E R O shoes.com slash go slash get your fix PT. And you can find all of my partnerships at get your fix slash partners. And now back to our conversation. So for you runners listening or, or people that are doing quite a bit of running, even if it's not a primary sport, everybody runs for most of their sports other than hockey players, I guess. And, um, so for other runners, I guess the uh, the other things that I look for with hamstring issues would be um, especially like pelvic stability and lumbar, like kind of optimal lumbar health. So sometimes people are really like, you know, those of us that are more recreational runners, myself included these days, um, if you are, you know, sitting a lot, your lumbar gets compressed, you stop having good like you know, lumbar lateral flexion is a big one for me. I think when when runners lose the ability to have lumbar lateral flexion, side to side movement of their lumbar, they also lose their ability to have undulation, oscillation of the of the ilia, so the, of the pelvis, uh, the bones of the pelvis. So, um, I really look at like how how's their lumbar health, and that's a big one. I think if, obviously most of us know about interpelvic tilt, and if we have too much interpelvic tilt and arching of your low back, that predisposes you to some risk for um, for hamstring issues. Uh, that can even pair with some some breathing stuff, diaphragm stuff, postural deficits that you may encounter in in your environment or in your life. Um, and then more speaking in a pure mechanical sense, I would say that the um, a lot of runners that I like, I see runners getting injured in their hamstrings because they're um, maybe they're like trying to do too much on the backside from a gait standpoint. So trying to do too much like of a butt kick motion, and that's often because they um, they can't get um, their their leg back through in swing phase. So they're kind of too far behind constantly. So they're kind of what people would say over rotated or anteriorly tilted in the pelvis again. And they're kind of maybe negatively foot striking or striking too much right underneath the center of mass or slightly behind. And all the work happens back there. And so they end up driving a lot of power by arching their back and kind of butt kicking. And I am really uh, certain that that is a good way to injure your hamstring. (laughs) Um, And it's also a good, you know, you know, you're more speed and power athletes. And I certainly work with a lot of elite sprinters and jumpers and hurdlers. And those guys tend to hurt their hamstrings more on the front side in more of uh, that eccentric slash isometric phase when the foot's swinging through and your, your leg, your foot is starting to come back. So you're negatively accelerating, pulling your shin back to the track or to the ground. 
Um, and as your foot's coming backwards to the ground, uh, if you're too far in front of the center of mass, then there's a um, there's an impact of that foot striking the ground. And if you're too far in front, the hamstring has been lengthening um, at the at the attachment up high, and it's it's so should be sort of shortening as you as you pull your shin to the ground. It should be shortening a little bit, but there's going to be a reverse stress where the now the heel is taken away from the from the knee, basically, or the, the knee is then opened again suddenly, and that creates a, a very large eccentric uh, force or contraction in the hamstring, which makes it vulnerable. Um, and so, as you know, Brienne, hamstring, you know, hamstring is often usually injured one end of the myotendinous junction or the other. So you can have certainly mid mid belly strains and all of that, but usually I find there's sort of a myotendinous component to most of these and. Um, so, so yeah, so the myotendinous unit is where the, the muscle part, you know, penates into the tendon for those listening. And so the, the, the strains and hamstrings you see are usually sort of the latter, uh, the lower third down near where the muscle becomes, um, tendon near the knee or the upper part. And, uh, and those are both ugly things to have happen. <laughs> As far as like when pulling that foot more to the butt, having difficulty getting that leg through, mm-hmm. do you think that's why, like, especially so common as far as distance runners will all of a sudden start incorporating speed work or just like randomly sprint mm-hmm. and injure themselves. Do you kind of attribute it to that, that once they start sprinting, they almost like don't know how to keep up with themselves? Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, that's, that can for sure be the case. And, and a lot, and so endurance athletes as a breed tend to be, they tend to be allergic to the gym and they tend to be allergic to power, uh, power activities. So plyometrics, uphill sprinting, bounding, uh, things like that. And, and force application is generally not their jam, right? They're really good at like kind of hot coals, picking their feet up off the ground and, and getting off the ground quickly, but they often find ways to do that. And the best athletes are the best compensators. But if you do a lot of running, even if you're not an, an elite, if you run 80 miles a week or, or you run long, long runs, if you're an ultra guy, girl uh you're going to develop compensation so that you can do that task repetitively over and over and over and that may involve giving away some power so it may even mean that you 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 give up ground contact time to get more frequency but to get off the ground quicker but you may not be doing it by really pushing through the ground you may be kind of over over lifting with your kind of your hip flexors and, and even using your hamstring and gastroc more to overlift. Um, and so that's definitely a movement pattern that I tend to see. I tend to see that, that gait type or whatever pretty often. And I call them the prancer type where they kind of, they want to get their feet off the ground as quick as they can, like a horse prancing where you're holding the, holding the reins tight on them a little bit. And, um, and so that, and then if you introduce speed work to somebody like that, that doesn't know how to push through the ground and doesn't know how to apply force their, their method will be to just continue to butt kick a little harder and more and higher. And now we're starting to use the hamstring and running uh, it, as a major part of our forward propulsion in the opposite way to how the hamstring is, is best utilized. And the hamstring is a great isometric worker, meaning that it does a great job of kind of holding and preserving tension as our foot's contacting the ground. And then it's best utilized to kind of help the body reposition itself directly with the hip over top of the foot and slightly past so that then our, our extensor group, our quad, our um, glute, our adductor to some extent, but lesser, but still there, and our calf can all push. And so the hamstring is really good at that holding of isometric tension and balancing it with the quadriceps and of course everything else downstream so that we can then create a big push from the hip. But when you do this kind of gait pattern we're talking about where you're kind of like already behind yourself a little bit, over-rotating and kind of butt-kicking too much, um, now you're just using the hamstring concentrically. And it's really not designed, uh, well, the hamstring as it exists anatomically is not best used as a concentric worker. And so that's one reason I'm, I'm a little concerned with the tend to uh, all these runners to do tons and tons of heavy weighted glute bridges because know if that translates well to preventing injury uh in, in an elite runner so. mm-hmm. i would agree with that definitely yeah. you mentioned it briefly and i kind of want to dive into it just because i feel like it's 
shouldn't say feel. It is such a big component of our function and of our health, and it's frequently neglected, and that is proper breathing and the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. um, and how much it plays into our core stability, our core strength, and just our overall like function of our body, essentially. So I um, kind of want to dive into that and um, as far as like how essential is breathing through the diaphragm, using that diaphragm properly when we breathe um, to not only hamstring injuries, but just injuries in general? Well, I mean... I probably am a middle of the road person in this and that I don't want to say, I don't want to overdo the importance of it, but I definitely don't want to underdo it. I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with making too many broad sweeping generalizations. Uh, and I think for example, like I'm interested in the PRI methodology. Um, I'm uncomfortable with how general their, 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 and formulaic their, their outcomes or their predictions tend to be, because I, I think there's a whole host of patterns that are much more, um, more broad. However, they have done a good job accentuating the importance of it. So I appreciate that. And I, I think there is a lot of value in that. Um, so, you know, breathing is a really important activity for sport <laughs> and, uh, all sports, as far as I can tell, yeah, maybe not. Well, yeah, everything. And then, um, in, it's also very much a parasympathetic uh, component as well. So breathing can be used to really get people into parasympathetic states. And so when people don't breathe well, uh, if they if they always have that kind of paradoxical breathing pattern where they're kind of stress breathing up in the top of their shoulders and in their chest, and they're just kind of shrugging their shoulders to breathe and their neck is lit up all the time, well, you're going to have a hard time with that person ever unwinding, ever recovering. That parasympathetic rest and digest state is going to be that much harder to achieve. They probably end up with a bunch of gut health issues. They probably end up, um, you know, having all kinds of other problems as a result of that kind of uh, body-mind state, I guess. Um, and, and so that's one thing from an injury standpoint. And then the other thing is, um, and now, now I think we, we're still focused on some of these wearable technologies, which are really exciting. Like I just bought an aura ring. I don't have it yet, but I'm really interested in just some of the, the qualitative ways to measure or uh, quantitative ways, sorry, to measure our sleep and our recoveries and things like that. So we have more and more ability to do this stuff. So I think we should really be able to see what breathing does for that, for example, breathing or many other practices. But, uh, but I think that's a big part of recovery and, and injury in general. And then more specifically with hamstrings or with anything else, uh, you know, the diaphragm and the way that we breathe is so closely intertwined with posture. Uh, and you couldn't say that people that breathe poorly generally have good posture, I don't think. You think? Pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so, so when you, when, if you have good posture and you can breathe well, I think everything gets a little bit easier for you athletically. And uh, we'll talk about the hamstring specifically in a second. But Tom Talese is one of the best sprint coaches of all time and mentored um, one of my coaches, who's also one of the best coaches of all time. And uh, Tom Talese has a famous quote that says, the first most important element of speed is posture. And so like, if you want to avoid, for example, hamstring problems, you have to be in good postural positions. You have to have your spine in a good position so that you can hammer your foot into the ground and you can, you can absorb that impact stress and then not only amortize that force, but then build tons of, of force quickly and rapidly and, and go through the next cycle. And, um, you know, if you're trying to hit the ground with your spine in a bad posture, you're just not, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to handle that, that stress and you won't preserve some of the energy required to produce more force economically. So, um, so people like Usain Bolt are, you know, he's the fastest person of all time. And Usain Bolt has a famous, you know, scoliosis problem, a postural problem and in his spine and, and you know, with all these rotational torsional components of the segments of the spine, but Usain Bolt gets lots of treatment and he does lots of things to manage his scoliosis from a rehab and corrective and therapy standpoint. And he's managed to, you know, he had a very long career and was always able to hit the ground hard and, and produce speed. Uh, and he had very low rates of injury, very few hamstring problems, if any, that we know of. So, um, so that's a good example. And I think once you have diaphragmatic problems, you probably, you're going to be in compromised lumbar spine and thoracic spine positions, which then leads to some sort of a pelvic issue, probably a pelvic shift anteriorly. So as people kind of get into this lower cross syndrome, it's called. And if you don't know what that is, it's like you're shifting your pelvis 
out over your toes instead of standing evenly on top of your ankles. And um, so you probably, if you stand like that, you probably have a harder time hip flexing with much power, which means you also have a harder time getting vertical force. You also probably don't push as well with your glutes and you may do glute exercises till the cows come home. Um, but your glutes may still not be quote unquote firing. And that's a, I think, a, you know, a bigger question we can get into. <laughs> but I'm uncomfortable yes. with the term in general. Um, but I think if we aren't addressing how our athletes, uh, you know, breathe and work with, you know, maybe move, breathe into their lower and wide and posterior parts of the rib cage, know how to do that at points. Uh, I think they're, I think they're certainly set up for, for injury. So. Yeah. I've been playing around, um, I just have fun experimenting on myself and seeing what things, <laughs> what changes mm -hmm. um, from a performance standpoint and just the whole parasympathetic sympathetic system. I've been playing around watching my heart rate um, with chest breathing and then switching to the diaphragm and seeing how drastic that changes. And it's a good 10 to 15 beats per minute difference um, once sure. you start breathing through the diaphragm. So it's pretty like, and if you translate that over to performance, like if you can breathe through your diaphragm, keep your heart rate a little bit lower you're not going to burn as much energy. You're going to be able to perform a lot better. So, right. And we have all these other breathing muscles. You know, we have our serratus posterior inferior, these muscles down in the back of your ribs down low. And like those muscles are meant to move the ribs to help you breathe. Right. And you're, you're basically leaving things out that are supposed to be working for you. <laughs> uh, so that's, and you know, these, the psoas has a huge, uh, fascial relationship with the diaphragm as well. And the psoas, everybody knows about the psoas these days, but um, you can sew right yourself to till the cows come home. But if you're if you're still not breathing well, the fascial attachments up at T12, L1, and, and, and the diaphragm has those crow that run down along the fronts of the lumbar spine, um, you, can, you can set yourself up for lots of problems and not really get over it um, if you don't fix that component. So yeah. I really think that's, you know, it's impossible to ignore. <laughs> yeah, love it. What are, we talked kind of around all around hamstrings and we, you did talk about some like compensations on yourself. Mm -hmm. What are just like, I won't say necessarily common trends, but kind of as far as that you typically like, just because of like people are sitting more and like round and shoulder posture and all this stuff or driving more. What are some common trends you see happening to the body that are creating like common injuries? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, a lot. Uh, I'm really concerned with um, our younger athletic population and cell phones. I mean, actually, our whole population in general. Um, but I work with, I, I'm fortunate enough, I do quite a bit of consulting with um, USC. Uh, and so I have a lot of athletes on the USC track team that are all very good athletes. We have, you know, many national championships uh, in that group. And um, I'm just there occasionally as a consultant to help uh, with some of their special problems and, you know, their top athletes. And it's wonderful to get to work with college kids again. Uh, and a lot of these kids are on their phone a lot and it's just kind of the way we are now as a society. Um, it's not their fault at all. Uh, but I think being on phones and like that, what that does to your head, where your neck position is, and you're scrolling Instagram and, um, doing all these things. I, I think, you know, tissues, become better at doing tasks that we put them in and when you when you cause tissue remodeling in certain ways that's hard to undo or or you know you can't live with a you know a major cervical shift forward a head forward posture and then expect that when you go to run hard on the track that won't manifest in some way you know there's going to be some compensatory effect if you spend you know 12 hours a day in a bad postural position you're going to have a really hard time getting into a good one just so that you can produce speed and 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 so uh i, I i'm really concerned with that and our younger athlete population and phones the head forward sets you up to automatically create kind of these hyperkyphosis you know a rounding of your back uh, uh eventually with enough time and degenerative change and, and stresses to the lumbar spine, you're going to get a flat lumbar spine, which means you actually can't antivert your hip, rotate your hip forward enough to push off powerfully. So then your glute shuts off and then you can't do anything with that. And so all, you know, our older athletes, we need to really think about their whole uh, postural environment that they live in and how can we improve some of their postural qualities so they can still uh, be athletic too. 
Um, I, I guess it's, I think it's those things primarily are how I would go first. And um, driving is certainly an issue. If you have long commutes, it's very hard to expect that you can get out of a car and, you know, run a, go run an eight mile tempo run with any quality. Um, and, uh, and the more you age, all these things get harder and the worse your nutrition and sleep and hydration, all those things are. So the health of our fascia, you know, kind of preserving fascial health is a big one for me. Um, and you can combat that with your environmental decisions that you make. Uh, but standing desks with good workstations is huge. And I think, I think we need to move towards a situation if kids are going to be using computers in schools now and or they're going to be virtual right now, as many are in our country. Like we need to be setting our kids up with good workstations where they can stand and sit alternately and not just be sitting. Uh, I also think um, our, you know, my, all my athletes that have real jobs that, you know, that, Pro athletes is a real job, but it's different lifestyle. Uh, my athletes that have a job, in addition to being an athlete, uh, we talk a lot about workstations and, and childcare scenarios, and you know how do you spend your time? You know, doing household chores, maybe things like that. So, what are some suggestions that you give? Like, some people just can't help but have a hour, hour and a half long commute, and then have to go and then get home and go for a run, or um, may just not be in a circumstance that they can stand at work for whatever reason. What yeah. are some things that they can do after sitting for long periods of time before they go, whether it's to the gym or on a run, to give themselves better power, better speed, minimize yep. injury? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is that's a great question. I actually. Um, I actually have a program for that with people. I have like an online program that we release videos for like a minute pre-run and a 10 minute post-run thing. And we have other, I have other things as part of the program, but, but the, I, I'm going to answer your question more specifically here, but like you could do like, you know, I tell my people like you can do five minutes or eight minutes or 10 minutes of pre-run stuff to make that run so much better. Yeah, you're still going to start your first mile running slower. Maybe you run, you know, 650 a mile on your regular average training run. Maybe you're going to, I'm going to start at 745. My first mile is going to be slow, you know, and then it's going to pick up and I'm going to end up running probably 630 the last mile or whatever. But, um, but you, in addition to just starting easy, you can also do a few things to make yourself feel better. So like my formula for myself to keep myself healthy is, you know, I've kind of tested lots of things over, over the years, but I do a little bit of like deep joint range of motion stuff. Like I'll do some lunges to like full depth. I'll do a couple walking lunges with thoracic twists towards the side where my leg is forward, you know, so I'll be kind of in a vision being in a lunge position and then turning my trunk all the way uh, towards the right. If I'm my right leg is forward and, and I kind of do walking lunges down the block like that before I start jogging and I'll do, so I do that last, but I do some step ups onto a curb and then I'll do some side lateral step ups into like a high, knee position like an a position we call it like setting up sort of like an a skip i do a couple plyometric -y things on the days i'm going to want to run a bit harder i do some very uh i do like essential or sorry isometric calf like a soleus isometric hold on the curb so all this is no equipment right and i'll do like you know maybe back and forth three by 30 seconds iso holds trying to stretch out my soleus i have a little bit of a bent knee uh and i'm i'm at my on my feet most of the day. So I actually need to just get, make my soleus feel better uh, before I start running and just kind of get that tissue open. And there's good research on um, doing isometric uh, work to help condition that myotendinous junction that we talked about where the muscle meets the tendon. So uh, if you want to, if you've ever had any Achilles soreness and things, you need to do something for your lower extremity. You can walk on your heels down the block for you know, a hundred meters and then do toe walks and things like that. So there's lots of like little things that we can do and it doesn't have to cost you a lot of time. I know we're all starved for time. Um, but I think some things like that uh, can go a long ways towards making a runner uh, feel a little bit better if you did come off of a commute or, you know, whatever. So when I was a pro athlete, we used to have to commute to train to get down the mountain from snow. Sometimes we did altitude training. And so we would drive 45 or 50 minutes some days to get, to lower altitude where we could run harder and it wasn't snowing. And uh, so I learned very quickly how important it is to like do warm ups and movement stuff. And we would bring medicine balls in the car and do some other things to get moving before we uh, began. So that's a more extreme version, but the more serious you are, the more you need to do that stuff. So I think it's good to point out too, that um, in my opinion, the same thing goes for if you are training 
in the morning. So if you literally are like getting out of bed, putting your shoes on and getting out the door, like your body, yes, you haven't, or no, you haven't been sitting, but you've still been like in one position at rest for a long period of time that it's also important too, to just really kind of do that same thing and really get the body warmed up and moving. Absolutely. I've had the fortune of working with a lot of the best runners and best athletes in the world. And I think most of us that are recreational or, or, you know, weekend warriors, we, you know, like we kind of think that we can get away with doing less than we can. And it's kind of like, who are we to be so naive, you know, <laughs> like, you know, if you run 30, 50, 60 miles a week, that's good running. That's quite a bit of running, right? It's not easy to do it depending on your frame and how skilled you are and your technique and your mechanics, all that. Um, but like, you know, if you want to run a hundred or 120 or 140 miles a week, pro runners that do those things, they spend an hour in, in the morning getting ready to go training, not training. They spend more time training, but they spend an hour getting ready. And, you know, the Meb Kaflesgis and the Ryan Halls and the uh, Shalane Flanagan's and um, all, all these Desiree Davila, those athletes, I, I know them. I see them. I like, I know who they are. I, I, I watch them at races. I've worked with them. I've been teammates with them. And, you know, it's not an accident that they're the best because they spend all this time in prep. You know, Meb uh, would, was historically always early to training. He was, whenever we went to training, he was 15 minutes earlier than the meeting time was. And he was already there, rolled out on his mat, doing his warm-ups, doing all these exercises and getting ready. And a, a lot of us recreationals, we don't see that. We forget about that. So if you're, uh, maybe you're doing a, a quarter of the volume that a pro athlete does, you should do a quarter of the prep. <laughs> Please. <laughs> maybe you need more than the quarter of the prep. <laughs> well, and I think you made the, uh, the statement that I was going to say is that when you, and I think this is where I, really think social media is a big downfall is you see the elite athletes, whether they're runners or CrossFitters or OCR people, or, you know, whatever your sport is, you see these elite athletes, they're posting their workouts or, you know, the, the tough stuff. We don't see them posting the recovery stuff. We don't see them posting the warm ups, the accessory work, all of this, what I call the non-sexy stuff. Yep. And so the recreational athlete doesn't understand how like that behind the scenes stuff and how important it is. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a little bit under undersold, isn't it? And and it isn't it isn't sexy and it isn't that exciting, um, you know. Uh, but I I yeah, it, it's totally true. And I have like I can tell you, I've worked with lots of really talented CrossFit athletes, and they train really really hard. And you see the evidence of that in some of their social media feeds and all of that. Even then, you don't see the the pain and suffering that they go through. You don't see that degree. Uh, but but you also like. I have them on in my office on the table every week. And I know like, like how much work they're putting in, in addition to even that, you know? So some of my, one of my really good hurdlers that is you know, world record holder. I mean, she gets, you know, multiple therapy sessions per week, you know, plus doing an hour a day of prep before practice, plus doing exercises that I have her doing at night and plus doing stuff for travel to manage her travel on her back and, you know, all these things. And you know, that's all, that's all just part of being a, a pro at her level. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's the one thing that I try to eliminate with my, my recreation weekend warrior crowds is that like, and they trust me, you know, and they know I can help them, but I kind of teach them about, this is the stuff that elites know and do that you don't know. And they're like, well, did you do this? I'm like, of course. You know? <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we have to, we, you know, I think one of my biggest missions is what I've most enjoyed in my um, kind of my clinical practice with non-elites, which now I have a kind of a nice mix, almost 50-50. Um, but I started practicing as a therapist only doing elites. And uh, so I have a very jaded view of things. And uh, once I got into a regular clinical setting, I was like, wow, these people really don't know the most basics. And, um, and so I, I think it was really fun to like, it's fun to bring a spotlight to that and illuminate some of the basics. And, and even most of my people are not wanting basics. They want the advanced methodology and they, they want to know what the pros are doing. And so to try to teach, teach what is happening is really fun. So that's awesome. Yeah. We'll kind of start closing it out. If someone wants to find you, get more information from you or learn about your programs, where can they find you at? Uh, sure. They can. So I have, um, we have a website for my, for my whole, my whole business, which is called, um, kinetic performance. And, um, the website is kinetic with a K on the end, K I N E T I K 
spelled incorrectly, I know, but it's a Greek root, Greek root word. So kineticperformanceco.com. So kineticperformanceco.com. That's the, that's the website. Uh, we have quite a bit of information on there, and we're actually just building out more of an expansive blog uh, section. So there's probably going to be some more articles and things that might be interesting if somebody found any of this interesting. Uh, we also have a pretty active Instagram account for um, our, our main part of our practice. And then our biomechanics uh, lab Instagram is called the lab at kinetic. Um, the lab at uh, kinetic at is A-T uh, and then kinetic is spelled with a K on the end. And then our Instagram, I think, handle is at kinetic performance co as well. So, the, so those are good ways. I have a personal Instagram as well at Pierce F. Jonathan. It's mostly... Uh, random stuff, but I do post some clinical tidbits on there. Um, and, uh, and I guess like they can always email us or, or, or reach out via DM too. We're, we love getting questions. I love um, sharing information and learning. And uh, I, I think we all should learn from each other and kind of go forward. So happy to hear from people and they can, um, people can email me too, uh, just through our website. That'd be easy to email. So. Uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of the, the starter. <laughs> Way to get, awesome. Get <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure to be here and talk to you. I really enjoyed your, your questions and love what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks so much. And before I close out today, I want to take a moment to talk to you about the foot and ankle fix for runners. Foot and ankle pain is such a common injury with runners. And yet it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be bothering you constantly. It doesn't have to be shutting you down from being able to run. But many times it does because we don't do the right things for it. That is why I created the Foot and Ankle Fix for Runners. It's an online program that'll give you the right things to do in order to resolve your foot and ankle issues once and for all and let you really get back to training like you want to. So if you're interested in checking out the foot and ankle fix for runners, head over to getyourfixpt.com slash courses, and you can see a link for the foot and ankle fix for runners, as well as all of my other online programs. Thank you again so much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional.